Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, Dan Miller here. You know that bumping music reminds me we've got a listener who's working on some new bump music for us. Uh, knows we've been using taking care of business for a very long time, and personally, I like that. I, I think it's nice to be kind of branded with that, but um, we are looking at some new options. So have got a listener who's very aggressively putting together some new bump-in music for us. So you'd be looking for that in the next couple of weeks or so. Well, we're moving right along here through this uh, downturn, the economic recession, a depression, whatever you want to call it. And yes, you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of people who survived the initial crunch, but as time has gone on, just ran out of options. I mean, just in the last 10 days, we've been contacted by three different families who are essentially homeless. And these are not people who are used to being homeless or used to be at the bottom of the barrel, but these are rather people who are used to uh, having fine houses and fine cars and going on fine vacations. But with the extended, prolonged time period of things being pretty tough here, are just simply running out of resources. And boy, I mean, that's that's a tough position to be in. One of the things that I see happening is that people are having a difficult time just adjusting to what may seem to be a compromise. As an example, I mean, I know guys who were making $120,000 in their previous positions, lost their jobs. Now on a job search, somebody offers them 70 and they turn it down. They say, no, I can't do that. That's a pretty tough kind of thing. Now, I know there's a challenge with that if you're used to $120,000 for your lifestyle, but is 70 better than nothing? And sometimes when those things are turned down and passed on, then eventually there is nothing there. Now, I, I personally never allowed myself to get into that kind of position. Um, we we try, have always tried to keep our living expenses reasonable. So in periods of transition where I'm trying to start a new idea or going back to college or something like that, I always knew I could just get out and hustle, do something to at least make our basic living expenses. So we wouldn't lose a house or lose a car or not be able to eat, you know, those kind of basic kind of things. Um, you better have some kind of a baseline and know that you've got some alternatives for doing that other than just hoping to find another six-figure income guaranteed salary job because those are increasingly difficult to find. But I hope that all of you can back up and look at some just grassroots abilities that you've got that would allow you to hit the ground running if you needed to. And I mean just the simple kind of things where you could deliver papers or you could wash windows or mow grass or build a fence or clean a shrubbery. I mean, you got to have something that you can back up to where you can at least create some kind of income. Met with the gentleman yesterday, really interesting guy. I had lunch with him, uh, just a, a wonderful experience. And he talked about period of time where he was essentially homeless but he learned in that period of time to have an attitude of gratitude. We hear that as an old cliche, but he really learned the principle 
to be grateful for things that he had. He had a roof to sleep over. Now, the under the, the roof that he was sleeping under was the roof of his $800 car for a period of time. But he learned to be grateful for that. He would get up in the morning, go to the local rec center, pay three bucks, get a nice workout and a shower and be ready for the day. Some of that time he may spend going to a local park here, walking around the lake, and he'd sit on the side and look look across the lake, and he'd sit there and realize, you know, Donald Trump could buy this lake and build a house here, but he could not do what I'm doing. His lifestyle prevents him from being able to sit here in the middle of the day and look across the lake and enjoy the beauty that I'm seeing. And I thought it was a pretty neat perspective to have those eyes and the attitude of gratitude no matter where we are and 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 circumstances determine your degree of gratitude or your happiness or self-esteem then you're really vulnerable we've got to learn to get past those things but these are trying times where people are having to to really figure out what they're made of how they're wired uh, for sure and I certainly feel for people like that. But I see a lot of people just back themselves into a corner with unrealistic expectations of how they're going to address their day-to-day concerns. Don't go there. Well, let me, let me jump right into the questions. We have so many questions. I'm going to go through them rather rapidly today, just so we hit more of them. I sometimes feel guilty about not addressing so many when they're personal notes that come in with real situations. So I'm going to go through and address as many as I can here. Beatrice says, Dan, what are transferable skills? Can you please give an example of someone who successfully transferred skills from one industry to a different industry? Yeah, I mean, that happens thousands of times. And if you've got graphic design skills, those skills are going to be applicable in virtually any business out here. So if you've been in healthcare, real estate, or... um, manufacturing, certainly those skills are transferable to new industries. But I'm working with a pastor whose wife left him. Now, he felt called to preach and be a pastor. But in losing that position uh, because of a divorce hanging over his head, he had to figure out what could he do that would be applicable in another environment. Well, he understood that he has great skills in customer service. He understands financial spreadsheets. Um, he's, he's great at hiring, training, and motivating employees. Wow, those skills have application in lots of other places. He is now working for a software company, and his income is roughly 10 times what he was making as a pastor. So, yeah, I'd say that he was able to discover transferable skills and move on with those, even though he was preventing from continuing what he really thought he wanted to do. Now, that's another issue. I'm not saying that he just walked away from his calling. We're dealing with that right now and how to blend those things. But he certainly understands that he has transferable skills that don't limit him to just standing in a pulpit on Sunday morning. Sharonda says, Dan, I have an opportunity to start an annual function that will help me make some money for myself while helping other organizations. But I'm scared. I believe in this venture and know it will grow. How do I get past my fear so I don't lose my chance? Let me read another one here from Jim. Same issue. Dan, I know my passion, but I've spent my whole life avoiding and even sabotaging it due to fear. Fear of failure, fear of success, fear of the unknown, fear of running out of money. And he goes on to tell what he has done. He feels like he's not good enough and he's um, crippled by fear. Now, I did a blog a week or so ago because at one of our recent events that we just had here at the Sanctuary in Franklin, 
we we ordered pizza. Everybody wanted to hang around after it was essentially over. And so Ashley, my daughter, says, well, hey, let's just order pizza and everybody can hang around as, as long as they want to, which we did. In that, we had a guy deliver the pizza. It came from Papa John's. And he walked in. He says, oh, my gosh, this is a sanctuary, isn't it? He says, Dan, I've read your book. And he said, he was 43 years old. I think he said he was 43. But he said, I've never done what I wanted to do because fear controls my life. Now, I had a brief conversation with him, gave him some materials, connected with some uh, resources, but he said, fear controls my life. Now, here's what happens. Fear can control you. Here's the best way out of fear. Now, I'm going to give a brief synopsis on this as well because uh, we could spend all day on this. If you have no clear goals and you have no support system around you in terms of other people who believe in you, you know, fear is going to very easily control your life. But with those two things known, can you address those? Yes, you can. If you identify clear goals, here's where I want to be. And, and again, part of uh, the definition of goals means that you have a plan of action and a timeline. So if you identify where you want to be and you have a plan of action and a timeline, then you, in fact, do have a goal. That will help you move ahead. Action is going to take care of the fear that you have. You can act your way through fear. So make sure that you are clear about where you want to be and you have a plan of action and a timeline. Then just start doing that. I mean, I don't know of any better way to... to, deal with fear. I don't think this is some just uh, spiritual or elusive theoretical kind of experience where you go sit on a mountain top until you get rid of fear. I believe that action takes care of fear. But also put yourself around people who believe in what you're doing. I mean, one of the key characteristics of really successful people is that they spend time with people who are already performing at the level at which they want to perform. So find people who are already doing well. I mean, the guy I had lunch with yesterday, I mean, he has asked repeatedly to have lunch with me, and I agreed to do that. I mean, he knows that putting himself around people who are doing things that he admires will help him do the same, and that's a great way to do that. Let me answer, i got some questions here about franchising. Franchising is a very regulated business. You can learn about any franchise that you want to because they are required to give you an FDD. Now, that's a franchise disclosure document. It used to be called a UFOC, a Uniform Franchise Offering Circular, but they changed the name a couple years ago. So an FDD is the document you want to look for. If you want to open up your own sandwich place, you can ask Subway for their FDD, their franchise disclosure document, and you can learn a whole lot about making sandwiches, how to do it well, because of the material that they're required to give you. doesn't mean that you're obligating yourself to get a Subway franchise or anything, but you can get a lot of information because they have to tell all kinds of things. They have to give you names of people who are already in that industry, who are already franchisees. Uh, The franchisor is the company. The franchisee is the company. So anybody who has a Papa John's or Little Caesars or Subway's or McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King, they are a franchisee. The parent company is a franchisor. So, yeah, you can get a lot of information about that. 
I mean, if you really are interested in that, and you don't have to have a million dollars to get a franchise. I mean, we hear that a lot of times. People think you have to have a lot of money. Now, there are franchises for 2500 bucks. I mean, it just means that there's a prototype. It's clearly laid out. They're going to help you with marketing and help you with the business plan. There's a lot of merit in doing that. We're now over 50% of all retail transactions take place in a franchised operation. So it's a major business model. And if you want to learn from that, you can certainly do that. It's not the only way to start a business. And I've several times looked at franchises, and then I've never purchased a franchise. Every time I've looked at it, I decided that the franchise did not carry enough weight in terms of what they offered. And if I wanted to get into that business, I'd just get in it anyway. Now, you lose the power of branding when you do that, when you start from scratch. So if we're going to go out here and we're going to have uh, John and Dan's hamburgers, we got our work cut out for us as compared to having a McDonald's where the very first day we're going to have people streaming in there because they recognize that branded name. If you want more information, you can go to entrepreneur.com and check on franchises. Go to franchise.org. Massive amount of information there. Go to Frandata, F-R-A-N-D-A-T-A. You can get information there. Jeremy asked, my wife is trying to get into some work she'd love while keeping her traditional J-O-B. She really enjoys calligraphy and artistic writing and is hoping to turn this into a business. Other than the traditional wedding market, we were trying to think of a marketing strategy that hasn't been tapped into yet. I know there's something in line with the idea of the painter going to the dentist convention, um, but I'm having a hard time thinking of something. The painter to a dentist convention is an example that I've used about artists making themselves distinctive where somebody commented on an artist's work that it was really peaceful and had a calming effect based on that little tidbit and insight and serendipitous moment perhaps she went to conferences for dentists where she was the only artist there and she showed her work and why it did have a calming effect and knocked it out of the park by distinguishing herself in that way yeah that's what you're going to have to do but now here's the thing about calligraphy and artistic writing. Now, my, my wife, Joanne, enjoys both of those. She does a beautiful job. She enjoys the physical process of writing, and she does beautiful handwriting. But now, even from where I sit, I don't know how to have her turn that into anything marketable because it's so easy to duplicate. I mean, we, we have the fonts, the functionality available with computers today. It's pretty hard to make a case for that. I mean, it's like I could say, here's somebody who's really, really good on the typewriter and they never get the keys stuck at all. But can we market that skill? No, not a chance. It just doesn't have enough unique value with the other options we have available to us to really leverage that. And I think you're going to have trouble with that. I think it's going to be a, a hobby, something you enjoy, but I think it's going to be very difficult to turn that into a business, frankly. Here's another one that's kind of related to that. This is another issue. Jonna says, Dan, I hope you don't mind. I took the liberty or the audacity to edit your wonderful free ebook, 48 Business Ideas. Why? It inspired me, gave me a starting point to jumpstart a business idea I've had or an idea you gave me since reading 48 Days to the Work You Love last summer. See, I love to read and find myself finding typos everywhere. Flyers, books, newspapers, magazines, and websites, to name a few. She says, I'm not an anal retentive grammar freak. I just seem to see writing goofs everywhere. So I believe it would be a good service to offer people editing and proofreading services because it's important 
for marketing materials to look professional and throughout. I've attached 48 business ideas with some edits. Now, what she did, she went through the first, uh, I think, 20 pages or something of 48 days, the, the 48 low-cost business ideas that I've got on our websites. And it, it's a free downloadable PDF. And she found some glaring errors in there. You know, really, John, I mean, you did. There's no question about it. Let me address what you want to do uh, before I make a case for why I put something out there with all the goofs in it that I did. This is a tough kind of thing to leverage as well. I mean, I get I get emails every single week of people wanting to proofread my newsletters before they go out or proofread my blogs. Um, that is not a very um, lucrative skill to have. I mean, again, there's so much functionality that's available on a computer that will catch things, so there's that. But to just proofread doesn't really have a whole lot of value. Now, I want to distinguish a couple terms here because I think it's important. Because if you're talking about just proofreading, it means going through and finding where you spelled T-O-O and it really should be T-O and those kind of things. And that's that's okay, but proofreaders are a dime a dozen. And, and I have plenty of people standing in line and part of our team who would do that with no charge at all for doing that. I've never paid for a proofreader. If you're talking about editing, that's a little different. But when you're talking about editing, that's the work that somebody does to improve the formatting, the style, and the accuracy of the text. I mean, this this means you may change sentences around. You may change chapter titles. That's editing. Now, that does have value. And, and I encourage anybody who's going to write a book to have an editor involved, to get an editor involved. If you are not working with a publisher, then pay somebody to do the copy editing of your work. And that does have value. That's likely to be done. Now, John, what you're proposing here is to do this where you charge $15 for the first page, $2.50 for the next 50 pages, and then $1.25 a page after that. So like for the 107-page project that is 48 low-cost business ideas, the fee would be two hundred, roughly $200. Again, if you're talking about editing, where you're going to go in and really make it more readable and make it more engaging, suggest changes in the the text and move things around then that is then i would encourage you just to do it as a project not by the page just do it as a project now let me address one more level here and that would be actual ghost writing where you meet with dan meller and you kind of know my ideas already and you take some blogs that i've got and you simply take that and put it together in a book format now that's done all the time i mean you've heard me talk about crush it the new book by gary vinacek winelibrary.tv he comments on wines and he's a real wild and crazy guy and understands social media he had somebody ghostwrite his book crush it perfectly legitimate way to do that i mean that's what celebrities do politicians 
rarely are they ever going to write their own book. They're going to have somebody ghostwrite that. Now, ghostwriters really do get paid a lot. So we've got three different levels here. Proofreading is very difficult to turn into a profitable venture. I think it's very difficult for that to be scalable. Even if I had somebody proofread my material, I mean, I may have half a dozen times a year or something that I need that I really think that I need something proofread. So I think it's very difficult to turn that into a real business. If you are editing, though, that is different. And if you position yourself as an editor, want to help people shape their material, make it more readable, that's certainly a a needed thing. And as more and more people are self-publishing, yes, I think you can position yourself to do that. If you want to be a ghostwriter, I say just simply take the content. I mean, I have a a dear friend who's a ghostwriter. Now, he's pretty much at the top of his game, but books like Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now, I mean, he simply took lots of material that Joel had spoken and put it together, put it into a book format. Uh, He's done things like Lisa Beamer's Let's Roll, Bob Dole, One Soldier's Story, just did a book with George Foreman. But now he's a ghostwriter. Now, ghostwriters are going to get either just a flat fee And my friend does that. He's the top of his game, and he gets a really, really big six-figure fee for doing just that, what I described, ghostwriting for high-profile people, politicians, and celebrities. Uh, The person who, I mean, somebody who wrote, like, uh, Hillary Clinton's memoirs. I mean, she didn't do that herself. I mean, she's too busy to do that. She's not going to do that. I mean, that person... Uh, she got an $8 million book advance. That person is probably going to get half a million dollars for ghostwriting her book. Again, if, so if you want to position yourself in that way, and you, you certainly can do that. Now, okay, that being said, I've said enough about that. But back to the 48 low-cost business ideas. Here's what happened on that. I did a radio interview with Moody Radio, and that goes worldwide. They have a massive, massive audience. And in the discussion with Melinda Schmidt, the host of that, I said, you know, I ought to put together a list of, let's just make it 48 because I do so many things in 48. Let's make it 48 ideas, low-cost business ideas that you really can do, that you can get out here and um, make something happen. And I said, I'll make that available. I said, just go to 48days.net, click on the yellow post note that's there, and you'll see those ideas. Now, when we did that interview, I knew it was being recorded. I knew it wasn't going to be, it wasn't live. So then I asked Melinda, I said, hey, when is this thing going to air? I said, I don't have that done. I don't, what we talked about, I didn't do it. I just knew that I'd have a little time here. What happened is she told me a date that was about three weeks out. A week before that date was going to occur, I found out on a Friday night that that show had been moved up and was going to air on Monday. So on Friday night, I knew that on Monday, people all over the world and all over the world, literally, were going to be listening to that program. And they were going to hear me talk about just go to 48days.net, click on the yellow post-it note, and I didn't have anything there. Saturday morning, I contacted one of our virtual assistants. I said, are you up for a project this weekend? I said, I need to crank something out here. It needs to be formatted, pictures brought in, hyperlinks done to look nice and all that. And she said, yeah, you called me at a good time. My husband's out of time, out of town. Shoot it to me. I did that. I put that together on a Saturday morning. I pulled those things together, shot it to her. 
We were out of town for a funeral Saturday afternoon and Sunday. Sunday night when I got back, she had a draft for me to look at. I looked at it. I said, that's great. We had it up on our site approximately one hour before that radio show aired. And we had thousands and thousands of people that downloaded that based on hearing it there. That was the process. I did not have somebody proofread. I did not have somebody edit. I simply put it up there. That's the power of electronic media. And I just put it up there. But now the also, also the power of electronic media is that I have the option to change that today. So it has been a couple of weeks and I apologize about that. I have not done that, but you are absolutely right. That needs to be proofread if not edited. And so I am having that done right now. What that means is that at the instant we have that completed, what you see right there on the 48days.net website will be changed instantly. I mean, we never printed physical copies of that. You know, it wasn't bound. I didn't have a contract with a publisher. I just put it out there. Now, I take a lot of liberty with things like that, and apparently too many, because, yeah, there's a whole lot of typos and things in there that need to be changed. But we'll clean it up. I've always done things like that. I've never waited till something is perfect to act on it. I just get it out there, and then we improve it as we go along. Anything that I've ever done in terms of written material has been done like that. That's why so often I start with three-wing binders, where I just put it together, get it out there. We get feedback from our readers and listeners, and then I can go back in and perfect it. And when we get something that I think is in pretty good shape, then we may actually go ahead and publish it in a traditional format, where we have a perfect bound book and get it out there in the bookstores. So again, th- thanks so much for your uh, for your input on that, and I, I certainly take it seriously. Um, I am not a candidate to pay for proofreading. I have paid for editing, no question about that. And in the contracts that I have with publishers, there's always editors involved. You know, that process varies dramatically. I mean, I have written books where I submitted the manuscript, and I, I have one well-known book where I submitted the manuscript and they came back and said, golly, because this is kind of positioned in the Christian arena, can you remove Charles Darwin as an example in this little anecdote? I said, yeah, we removed his name. That's it. That was the editing that was done in that book, period, total. Nothing else was done at all. I have another book that I did with a well-known publisher The editing was excruciating. Every page had lines and lines and lines of notes. We did move chapters around, changed chapter titles, changed, pulled examples that I had used. And they would find obscure kind of reference on the Internet and said, well, somebody's already written about this, so we don't want you to use it here. It was a horrendous process. And frankly, I don't think that it improved the book uh, much at all. But it was the editing process that they wanted me to go through. And so it varies dramatically. Um, Sometimes editing doesn't have much to do with the quality of writing. It has to do with the editor's personal preferences and uh, that's okay too. I mean, there's a lot of ways to approach this. Well, let me let me move on. Let me let me jump in here with uh, this is a a phone call, and and this is a this is a little longer than what I like, but it's got a good point here that I want to address. Hi, Dan. It's Larry in Louisville. Got a question for you about 
a uh, series of interviews that I would like to do with writers and authors, and I would uh, uh, expect to take that content from those interviews and turn them into not only a podcast but into uh, CD recordings, uh, uh, have them transcribed and edited into uh, a, a potentially self-published book, into uh, reports, into uh, PDF files and, and uh, e-documents that could be given away and downloaded. Uh, turn turn the material from those interviews into 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 valuable content that would be both given away as well as sold in any number of creative ways. And my question is, what is my uh, legal and ethical obligation to the people uh, that I would be interviewing uh, in the way of informing them and or getting uh, a release from them to do some of these uh, things with these interviews? Obviously, I don't want to want to, uh, uh, you know, get off on the wrong foot with an interview by shoving a release under somebody's nose right before I might interview them. Um, I, I think that could result in everything from uh, I need to run that by my attorney to I'm not going to sign that thing and, and create a, you know, potentially uh, a hostile environment for the interview itself. And, and you know, I don't, I don't know what my... My, my duty might be here, and I'm just wondering what your take on that might be. Uh, love what you do. I've been listening to you for several years, and you're a blessing to everybody uh, that, uh, that finds you and connects with you, Dan. Thanks. Bye. Well, Larry, thanks for your question, and it is a good question. You know, as I encourage people more and more to create content, this comes up more and more. And it's interesting in the, that I encourage people to create content if you have any area of intellectual expertise, you can do a blog starting today. You can do a podcast. You can do little audio products. You can do eBooks. You can create instructional manuals. I mean, those things are have really easy entrance if you're doing something that has valuable content. Because I encourage people so much in that, I get asked to endorse books, do forwards, do podcasts, you know, comment in repeatedly. If I were able to do all of those, it would probably leave me no time to do anything else. Again, I, I, I love the fact that people take action, but I have done hundreds of interviews for just like what you're talking about. Now, here's how that's normally done. Normally, if you're interviewing a celebrity or somebody who's well-known, they're going to view it as promotion for themselves or do it out of the kindness of their heart to help you and encourage you in what you're doing. They are not going to, you know, if, you, if you interview Zig Ziglar, he is not going to be concerned about you turning that interview into a product that you sell where you can make a couple thousand bucks. It's just a non-issue. I mean, it, it certainly is with me, and I've done hundreds of these where the person has turned that into a product that they're going to sell. With my blessing, I have never tried to stop somebody from doing that. I, I do nothing but encourage them and show them ways to do that better. Now, here's part of what your question is as well. Have I ever participated financially in somebody doing that where I then get back-end royalties on a product they sell? Never, never, never have I done that. Now, I've had that offered 
many times where people say, well, I'm going to put this together as a product. So I'll pay you a dollar every time that you, every time that I sell one of these. And I tell them, you know, don't complicate things. I appreciate your heart on that. Don't complicate it. Just do well with it. Make a lot of money. I mean, I encourage them to do that. You're going to find people who are in high profile, who are well-known, who are worthy of being interviewed, are going to, for the most part, have that attitude. They're just going to want to help you with your idea. So now let them know what you're going to do. Absolutely. I mean, let them know what you're going to do. And if you want to have a simple release form in advance, just something through the email, say, hey, just say okay to this. Make Keep it really simple. Don't have some long legal document. I mean, I have gotten those. And for the most part on those, 100% of the time, I just simply say, no, this is too complicated. I don't want to take the time to read through your legal document about what I'm signing. And I'm not going to do that. Now, here's an example. I just did an audio product with Nightingale Conant. Now, you've heard me talk about them. They're the major company out of Chicago. First product was this, was The Strangest Secret by Earl Nightingale. And they've gone on to profile all the high, what I call, masters of achievement. So they have the Zig Ziglar's and Brian Tracy and Dennis Waitley and Napoleon Hill and Norman Vincent Peale and on and on and on. Anthony Robbins. Now, they asked me what they did. They wanted to celebrate 50 years of changing lives. They asked 25 of their top-selling authors if we would contribute two or three minutes, just a morsel of wisdom, something that was a real defining moment in our lives, something that really made a difference. I was delighted to be included in that list that includes, you know, it starts off with Brian Tracy and John Kamada and Dennis Waitley, and then here's Dan Miller, and I'm number four in that list of 25, and I'm thrilled to be in that company. Now, as I recall, I I didn't sign anything to do that. They just simply asked, and I said, yes, now they have a product. You know, I mean, they they have a wonderful product. I have those that we're giving away to people, and I'm thrilled to, again, be part of that group. But I didn't pay them anything. They didn't pay me anything, and I didn't sign any big kind of release to do that. I was just thrilled to be in the company. Boom, went and did it. Now, let me give you an example here of somebody who is doing this extremely well. His name is Michael Senoff, S-E-N-O-F-F. His site, if you go to hardtofindseminars.com, hardtofindseminars.com, you're going to find Michael is the master in doing what you're doing. I just recently listened to an old interview he did with Melvin Powers, who is one of the old masters of achievement in mail order marketing. Melvin Powers took books that had not done well and he got publishing rights and then made them household terms like Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. I mean, he got the rights to, believe it or not, at one time, Think and Grow Rich was in the public domain. He got, he just started publishing that. He has sold over 7 million copies of Think and Grow Rich because it was in the public domain. So I listened to an interview that Michael did with Melvin Powers. But go to Hard to Find Seminars. He has thousands and thousands of interviews that he's done with people, and he turns those into products. And I assume that he is doing quite well because of the so often that I see his material popping up. Michael Sunoff. Cheryl says, Dan, to make a long story short, I lost my job two years ago. Went back to school with the Assistance of Financial Aid and Workforce Investment Act, WIA. I'm attending full-time and as of this semester, assistance through um, through those 
organizations got cut drastically. I only have enough funding to take two classes now. My question is, do I give up on school, go back to work full-time, or do I find a part-time job and stick with the two classes? My graduation date was supposed to be next May 2011, so, geez, 10 months away or so. Without funding, I can't afford to finish without taking out loans, which means graduation is prolonged. We really could use the extra income. I think I know what to do, even if it's not what I wanted. I'd just like to have some guidance. Please help me make a decision. Well, Cheryl, if you're that close to graduating, I'd find a way to make it work. But don't assume that the only way to make it work is just borrow money to do it. I mean, get creative in doing that. I went back to graduate school to get my master's after I'd been out for five years. We bartered for the rent. Now, I did. I, I mean, I approach everything differently. We found an old house that had not been lived in for a long time. But it was real close to campus. We talked to the neighbors. Grass was, you know, shoulder high. Sidewalks were grown over. We talked to the neighbors and said, hey, what's up with this house? Well, that belongs to uh, Mrs. Kuhn was her name. And they said, you know, she's a wealthy lady in town, but uh, she had bad experience renting it to people. And so it's just vacant. We called her on the telephone and said, hey, we're a young couple. We've got one little baby our first little son at that point was about three or four years old and we'd like to talk to you about this house she said no i've had bad experience renting to college students i'm just not interested thank you very much uh the next morning we showed up on her porch literally we knocked on her door i said we're the couple that called you yesterday you know we'd really like to talk to you about the house and i said i'd really be interested in making it a pretty place again I understand you lived there at one time. I'm sure you're proud of that place. I grew up on a farm. I'd be willing to clean the sidewalks, you know, expose the patio in the backyard, paint inside, get the fireplaces working again. Are we, would you be interested? She said, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I would. We lived there for two and a half years and never paid a penny in rent because I, we agreed on a rental amount And I erased that and more. She paid me while we lived there because in my spare time, I did all the things I just described. So we had zero rent. I got a teaching assistantship at the university, which wiped out my tuition. Plus, they paid me $200 a month. So we had no rent. We had $200 a month, which pretty much covered. I rode my bicycle from the house over to campus. We were that close, either that or walked. And Joanne did custom sewing for hard-to-fit ladies for a little additional income. We never borrowed any money. We never borrowed a penny for me to go back and get my graduate degree like that. We simply did creative things where we erased any obligation that we had for, um, you know, the financial need. I would encourage you to do the same. Look for creative ways to... Keep going to school. Stay right on track so you can graduate in less than a year. Absolutely. Get that out of the way. But again, do it in a way that does not require you just go borrow money. Summer says, my husband and I both read your book and loved it. We're trying to escape from the area we live in because we hate it. It does not fit our lifestyle and and what we want for our family. We're trying to relocate back to Colorado, but it's 12 hours away. We've been following your plan. And my husband even went to Colorado for interviews. Has another trip booked in two weeks. But now, listen to this. But since he was not currently a local, he was passed up. 
He's very good at what he does. He's very charismatic. We were not even asking for relocation assistance. What else can we do to get job offers if we are not a local? Summer, I hate to break this to you. Your husband is not being passed up because he's not a local. That may be a convenient reason for them to say, we really aren't interested in having you on our team. But there is no way, if he's the best candidate for it, that they're going to say, no, because you don't already live here, we don't want you. I mean, geography is very fluid at this point. People can move at the drop of a hat, and you can apply in a area that is 12 hours away. Not a big deal at all. The job search principles are exactly the same. But you've got to get, you've got to remove believing that this is an obstacle. Something else is sabotaging your husband's positive results. Now, if it really came to it, I mean, how difficult would it be for you to go ahead and move there and for him to find a job, you know, painting houses for a month while he did a job search there? So you are a local. But really, that is not the issue. I mean, you can do the job search and do it effectively and not have, I mean, that should not even come up. I mean, if you want to get a post office box there in the town where you want to live and show that as your address, you can do that. So it's not even seen anywhere in your resume. But I mean, somebody ought to go through the entire interviewing process and not even know that you don't live there. If in fact you want to, you know, make it appear that you are local. So you can do that. But again, that's not the reason I encourage you to look for what is. This comes from uh, Richard, who says, Dan, I have some ideas on how to improve a couple of existing products in the pet and lawn care industry, but I have no idea what steps to take next. Having the ideas about how to improve something in the lawn care or pet industry uh, is not going to put any money in your pocket. And you can't go to some big company and say, hey, I have an idea. Will you pay me a million dollars for this? Nope. What you need to do is just act on what you have as a better product. You can make a simple prototype, but I mean, the people that did doggles, sunglasses for dogs, I mean, they didn't go to some big manufacturer and say, pay me for idea. They just started making them very simply. Husband and wife, they just started making them and knocked it out of the park. I mean, there's a story about the guy who on a Saturday morning was at the car wash. And as he was sitting there in the car wash, he watched those nylon bristles come around cleaning his cleaning his car and he thought you know what when I get home I've got to get down on my hands and knees and use the little clippers to trim along my sidewalk why couldn't I use nylon line like is used here in the car wash put that out the end of my electric drill I'll bet it would cut the grass where it would not damage anything else but it would cut the grass that's exactly what he did he went home made the first very rudimentary prototype of what became a weed eater but he put some nylon string on the end of his drill and found that he, in fact, could cut around fence post, around the sidewalk. But my point is, you need to make a prototype and just start selling them. That's how you're going to get traction and how you end up with something of value. You might want to trademark a cool name. I mean, like Weed Eater or Doggles. I mean, those two are examples. Get what you are creating as a, as a product, a cool name. Go out here and sell 10,000 of them. Then you've got some leverage to go to a company and say, hey, here's my idea. Trademarking the idea, I mean, trademarking a cool name will do more for you, incidentally, than patenting the process because chances are 99% that what you're talking about, whatever it is, it would only be applicable as a design patent, not a utility patent. 
So as a design patent, it's not going to give you that much protection anyway. Just get a cool name, trademark the name, which you can do for about 300 bucks nationally, and get out there and sell them. Rob says, I've always wanted to own a business in the financial services industry, and I'm having a hard time coming up with ways to relay my banking skills into a personal business idea. My experience is primarily in commercial banking. Um, not that I hate or dislike my current career, but I'm concerned with the further, that the further I ingrain myself in banking, the less likely it will be for me to pursue my own business ventures. At its most basic level, I want to help people with their finances. I don't want to be a product pusher, you know, forcing people to get products that benefit me and not them. Any advice? Most financial planners, Rob, do sell products. I mean, we're used to getting financial help at no cost from our investment guy or from our insurance agent or from our banker. We aren't used to paying for that. The reason we're used to getting that free is because those people are, in fact, selling products. Now, you're lying. I don't want to be a product pusher, forcing people to get products that benefit me and not them. I mean, my gosh, I hope not. I mean, I hope to think that my insurance agent recommends things to me that benefit me as well as him. Now, it's no secret that it benefits him. And could he recommend something where he gets a higher premium rebate than another product that may serve me just as well? Yeah, there's that possibility, but I have to have confidence in him and a trust at some point. The only other option that you're talking about is a fee-for-services planner. And I don't know of any fee-for-services planner that makes any money. Because for the most part, you're working with people who are struggling with their finances and you say, well, I'm going to charge you $450 to try to help you make a budget. I mean, it's it's a tough market to be in. I mean, Dave Ramsey has lots of people who are endorsed local providers or whatever they're called at this point. They help people with their finances. But I mean, I don't think you could, I mean, I think you could count on one hand Uh, those that make any kind of reasonable living just through fee-for-services. Now, you could write a book, you could do seminars, you could do things that leverage your information, your knowledge, but ultimately, you're going to be selling something. I mean, there's no way to frame this in a way that you're not selling something. And I think you're going to find it harder to sell your service as a fee-for-services financial planner than you would to be an agent for financial Investment tools, you know, for mutual funds and annuities and bonds and insurance programs, I, I think you'll find it easier to sell those and get a reasonable income than just fee for services as a financial planner. This is something that comes up a lot. I mean, I commend you on wanting to do that to really just serve people. But if you want that to be your means of creating income, then you're going to have to be realistic about the fact that yes, you are selling something. Well, I'm gonna look here. I've got. Time for time for just a couple more. Let, let me do this. I'm, I'm not even going to play this. Uh, somebody, uh, Nathan called in from Pittsburgh. He says, you did an interview with the podcast called Music Business Radio. And he says, I'm dying to listen to it, but I all I can find is a little commercial talking about it. I'll put that on our, as a matter of fact, I think it's already on our podcast links. I have gotten a lot of questions about that, but it's at RadioAmerica.org. If you go to RadioAmerica.org and just scroll down to the Toolkit podcast page, you're going to find my interview, I think, is still like third or fourth down there. And you can listen to that. It's just a 12-minute interview where uh, you know Greg did a great job of asking me questions. We talked about the music industry. 
Okay, Matrice says, unfortunately, finances and schedule conflicts prevent me from attending the June conference. When is the next, or prevented me from, yeah. When is the next right to the bank conference later to occur? And incidentally, I think that is in September. Um, Matrice says, I live in Brooklyn, New York, so any upcoming event in the vicinity of New York City or Brooklyn would be of interest to me. Look forward to your response. Got another just delightful note here from Rose, who says, I'm an avid fan of your work. Um, the other day I heard you talking about people coming to your events all the way from Columbia, South America. Rose says, I live in Costa Rica and I got the craziest idea proposing to you to hold one of these events here. I would love to meet you personally, but don't have the money to go to the sanctuary. And here there is so much you can do in regards to adventure tourism, nature tourism, volcanoes, beaches, rivers, canopy, a huge variety of forests, scuba diving, dolphin whale watching, and so on. Perhaps if you offered the No More Mondays or Right to the Bank or your coaching event here, it would be easier and cheaper to travel here for all the America's countries. And I could help you with some of the logistics. And she goes on and talks about Costa Rica as the happiest nation in the world and so on. Well, golly, I love your interest. Um, there's a lot of merit in what you're saying. You know, Could we do events around the country? Absolutely. Uh, do I want to do events around the country? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I'm, I'm just pretty spoiled with the lifestyle that I have now. I mean, I, I hope that comes through in what I talk about here. I mean, I love being here out in a cow pasture in Franklin, Tennessee. I love doing events here at the sanctuary, our converted barn right here. Uh, I would not even do those if it were not for the fact that my daughter Ashley handles everything. I mean, she handles everything. When you're going to show up, when you register, where you're going to stay in hotels, what we're going to eat, when we start and finish. I just walk in and and do it. I mean, I help her with laying out the uh, agenda that we're going to have, but I'm pretty spoiled at just being here. So it's not likely that I'm going to start a traveling circuit to do events around the world, even though it makes a lot of sense. Now, the other part of that is people ask, why don't you just do those events virtually? Why don't you do a webinar for your coaching with excellence? Why don't you do that for right to the bank? And I tell them, you know what? Talk to some of the people who have been to those events here. There is no way to duplicate the experience of being here at the sanctuary. And I'm I'm in an all-due modesty. I mean, it's not just me. It's the people coming together. We can't recreate that just by doing something over the Internet. I mean, I have to understand, getting the information that we provide is probably 20 or 25% of the process. Having the experience of connecting with other people who are on the same path as you and hearing their stories, hearing their struggles and their successes is the other, you know, 75%. I mean, that's what I don't want people to miss. So it's not just information. That's why we do events. If it were just information, I'd put it in a book and just say, hey, here, get it. You're done. Now, the experience weighs in heavily, and I do like doing those right here. Well, golly, we are running out of time already. Here by the music coming in there, taking care of business. We've taken care of a lot of business here. Uh, it's my delight to come to you and this way every week and to read through the real things that concern you. And trust me, those are things that continue to concern me as well. And together, we'll figure out answers that will help us all be more successful. Remember, again, you can shoot your question in to Dan at 48 Days or ask Dan at 48days.com or you can call 304-729-4848. I trust you're having a wonderful week as you continue this process of figuring out not only the work but the life that is meaningful, the life that you love. Have a great week.